A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Tuesday. And two big hearings today in Washington, D.C. Testimony from the head of failed bank SVB, as well as the CEO of AI phenomenon ChatGPT. And debt ceiling talks today, too. But will policymakers agree? Progress is needed soon, but there's no guarantee. Details on today's headline potpourri and perspective from two key voices. Ian Bremmer. President and founder of the Eurasia Group, Angie Zero Media, will discuss the debt ceiling drama, Turkey's presidential election runoff and Ukraine's spring offensive. Plus, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO and chairman of Google and author of the book, The Age of AI and Our Human Future, will be discussing the dangers he sees for an AI-driven amplification of all the worst traits of social media. Think floods of easily made deep fakes and endless levels of misinformation. He thinks we should, in fact, raise the age of Internet adulthood to 16 years old to protect our children and enforce it. Congress, are you listening? All of this ahead of a Titanic Tuesday test. US stocks on track, as you can see there, for a slightly softer open. Europe, little changed overall, though in the UK, Vodafone shares are down some 6% on news that it will be cutting some 11,000 jobs. That's around 10% of its global workforce. It's part of the new CEO's turnaround plan to try and boost profits. That's an interesting investor reaction to that news. A whole host of fresh data pointed to weaker global growth too. Chinese retail sales and industrial production numbers all coming in below expectations in April. And just now, U.S. retail sales numbers up a weaker than expected 0.4%. That's actually half of what was expected. It follows credit data this week in the U.S. too showing rising debt levels and consumers finding it more difficult to repay loans. Tied to that, Home Depot today cutting full-year sales guidance and warning that consumers may be more cautious about spending going forward. Their shares down more than 2% pre-market. Now, where Wall Street ends up today, however, will have a lot to do, perhaps, with the tone of this afternoon's debt ceiling negotiations. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning again yesterday on Monday that the U.S. government could run out of cash as soon as June 1st. So that's just over two weeks away. In the meantime, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the two sides remain far apart. I appreciate the president finally willing to talk after 97 days, but there is no movement. We're only a couple weeks away. And if you look at the timeline to pass something in the House and pass something in the Senate, You've got to have something done by this weekend, and we are nowhere near any of that. Arlette Sines joins us now from Washington. Arlette, the temptation is to ask you deal or no deal. But actually, listening to Kevin McCarthy there, I'm sort of less optimistic than some of the headlines coming out at the weekend. Are we further away today than we were then? Well, Julia, the public messaging around this upcoming debt ceiling meeting has certainly been vastly different when you hear the White House and hear House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's perspective on things. You heard the House Speaker there really offering this pessimistic view about the status of the talks. This follows, though, President Biden really expressing optimism, saying that he does believe that there is a desire on both sides to reach an agreement. But sources have told us that behind the scenes, those staff-level talks have continued in 
in earnest, with each side calling them constructive, even though they are incredibly slow moving, uh, given the, the very tight timeline that lawmakers have at this point to raise the debt ceiling. Now, heading into this meeting uh, a bit later this afternoon, President Biden will be sitting down face to face once again with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy one week after their last meeting. Um, there another time constraint that they are facing in this moment is that President Biden is set to leave for Japan tomorrow to attend the G7 summit, another issue that is incredibly important uh, to this White House. But aides I've talked to have acknowledged that he could very well leave for this trip without a deal in hand, but with those staff level talks continuing. The House Speaker has said that he thinks there needs to be a deal by this weekend uh, because uh, the progress up on Capitol Hill, moving legislation, getting a caucus on board takes a lot of time. Things are very slow moving there. So really heading into this meeting today, there are kind of some low expectations uh, from both sides about whether an actual agreement between Biden and McCarthy can come to fruition. But it's those staff level talks where they are hoping to try to drive some more of the conversation that this meeting will help shape some of the contours of what exactly they're discussing when it comes to raising the debt ceiling as that X date uh, still looms for June 1st, as Se Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, outlined yesterday. Yeah, and hopefully that warning is uh, ringing in their ears while they're uh, talking about all of this. And to your point, I think uh, posturing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Arlette Sines, thank you so much for that. And we're about to discover how much U.S. lawmakers know about artificial intelligence. Sam Altman, the CEO and co-founder of OpenAI, that's the company behind ChatGPT, is testifying in Congress about the risks and benefits to society. And Donny O'Sullivan joins us on this. Donny, the hearing comes, what, just a few months after some of the biggest players in the industry warned that we need some kind of pause to get to grips with how we best handle the application of artificial intelligence. What do we hear from Sam today? And let's be honest, how much do we think lawmakers actually understand about this? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, Julia, it's it's hard to believe, but it was only about five years ago, I think, that uh, Mark Zuckerberg was called in front of Congress for the first time in 2018 after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So at that point, Facebook had been around for about 14 years and had already changed the world. So they are catching uh, OpenAI and Sam Altman a bit earlier uh, in the AI process, as it were. Um, OpenAI has been around for seven or eight years. Uh, but look, this I expect to be a pretty surface level hearing. I mean, uh, there is so much uh, that, you know, it sounds cliche, of course, but AI is going to touch every part of our lives, whether it's from disinformation, which we know all about ahead of next year's election, uh, to jobs, to the music industry, to film, to everything else. So, uh, you know, having one hearing over the course of a few hours is not going to solve a lot. But I think really what it is going to be uh, is an introduction uh, to this issue and perhaps some congressional oversight uh, of uh, the issues around AI. Uh, but to your point about lawmakers and how they understand this, look, we all remember, uh, you know, over the years, particularly the early social media hearings in light of the uh, 2016 uh, election here in the US, lawmakers asking pretty clueless questions uh, about how Facebook or about how Twitter works. Uh, we may uh, see questions like that today. Uh, but look, I will just say sometimes even, you know, Altman himself and also we saw the head of Google recently talk about 
they don't even necessarily always know how these systems work, right? There are certain things that these AI models do uh, that experts, the people who design them still, uh, don't quite understand uh, how, how they end up doing uh, certain things or how they're so good at doing certain things. So um, we might be able to give uh, lawmakers a bit of a pass today. Absolutely not. I mean, one could have argued that about Mark Zuckerberg back in the day as well. Um, No one gets a pass here, but I I think you do make a very valid point. My problem, and you've underscored it, Doni, is that it's congressional oversight or complete overlooking because they've been completely incapable of taking any action on the social media giants. Probability that they take any action in time on this. It's moving way quicker. It is moving so much quicker. And, you know, experts we've spoken to said, you know, you thought the social media revolution, as it were, happened quickly. Uh, This is happening exponentially uh, faster uh, than that occurred. Um, And look, to your point, we haven't seen, of course, really any effective regulation here, particularly in the United States, um, over the social media companies. That is a bit different in in the European Union with some laws out of Brussels. Um, So, look, I I think the chances are pretty low. Um, But I guess I guess we'll see. I mean, one one thing, one tan- tangible thing, um, you know, that these models, like how, th- how it works is these AI models kind of take in a ton of data. So, so they read, you know, they can read millions of Wikipedia pages and books and audio books. And it, the AI model kind of trains on that language to figure out, you know, how humans speak, how, how sentences are constructed. Um, so there is some talk about, well, if where are those companies? Where is OpenAI AI pulling all that information from if they're pulling it uh, from, you know, copyright? and material, uh, should uh, the people who created that material in the first place uh, be reimbursed or compensated in some way? And we're seeing that especially when it comes to the music industry. I mean, you can type into YouTube today uh, hits from, you know, AI versions of, of songs by different artists. It sounds, some of them sound really like the recording artists, uh, but uh, in reality, the, the artists never sang those words. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of debate around that. That's just the beginning. Um, Donny O'Sullivan, great to chat to you on this. Thank you so much. And uh, some of those points after the break, we'll hear from the former Google CEO and chairman, Eric Schmidt, who has a sober warning about the darker sides of the use of artificial intelligence and what needs to be done to protect us from things like deep fakes, as Donny was saying, and misinformation and the potential amplification of the risks from social media. In the meantime, the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank plans to apologise before a Senate committee in the next hour. Greg Baker also plans to testify that no bank could have survived the run that gutted SVB back in early March. In a statement, the former CEO said he's, quote, truly sorry for how it impacted SVB's employees, clients and shareholders. And Christine Romans joins us now. Uh, Great to have you with us, Christine. As always, he's going to blame a combination of rising interest rates and the steep level of withdrawals, which is not wrong, but they should have been managing those risks, surely. And, And where were the regulators? We've got to talk about this today. This is a real uh, banking industry postmortem. It really is. And I think you're going to see some sharp questioning of this CEO and a couple others from Signature Bank uh, as well who will be there. So he points out very specifically the language from the Fed. Remember, early on in the inflation crisis, saying the inflation issue would be transitory. And, and he points out in this testimony that uh, language like that, the bank could not have foreseen that it would have been the, the briskest pace of, of tightening in 40 years that they would have to manage through. So 
So on the one hand, saying I'm truly sorry. On the other hand, saying, but it's not only our fault here. Um, You know, the federal regulators had said this was primarily a case of mismanagement, bank mismanagement, while also uh, in its own postmortem, the Fed as as the regulator saying that there were mistakes that were made and there should be some tightening of regulations. But it is a moment here where I think um, it will be humbling for these uh, CEOs, some of whom there'll be one uh, founder of Signature Bank will be speaking later today, but just shows you how swiftly the rug was pulled out of these three companies. I mean, you look at the, the, and this is something that Greg Becker is going to mention today, the fact that the previously largest run bank in the U.S., bank run was $19 billion in deposits over the course of 16 or 17 days. That's when he says, I do not believe any bank could have survived a run of the velocity and magnitude of this one. Social media, a new element here. Um, Now you can have people on social media essentially, essentially, uh, you know, in the 1980s uh, last, you know, crisis, you had to have, people had to stand and wait in line to get their money out. Now all you have to do is click a button. There were billions of dollars moving at a speed that we have never seen before. So clearly a very different environment today. Yeah, and a valid point. But unfortunately, they were so exposed to the technology sector and someone yeah. should have been arguing and fighting to diversify the portfolio. I guess shoulda, woulda, coulda. Um, it's classic. Very quickly, stock sales in the run up to this and in the two years, actually, the last two years, I think it was over $80 million worth of of shares sold by the exec team in this company, SVB. Yeah. So the big question will be, are these regularly regularly scheduled stock stock sales part of the normal course of business as many executives who are paid uh, in part of their compensation is stock, you know, and then they regularly sell it? Or are these, you know, unscheduled stock sales? And what does that say? Also, is there any kind of potential clawback here for those sorts of uh, for those sort of because shareholders were wiped out in this case here. Right. Uh, And so if if a lot of this compensation was based on on uh, on equity. Right. Should there be clawbacks of some of the um, of some of the income from from these uh, from these executives and uh, uh, of these big banks that I think is is a big question, which will be interesting. You won't. I don't know that you're going to hear Congress ask those questions since there are very weak rules among members of Congress for whether they can be selling stocks of financial institutions when they are briefed about things that are happening in the financial sector. That's a whole other story. Yeah, and a really great point. We'll see, Christine <laughs> Romans. Thank you so much for that. Welcome back to First Move. Whether it's a conversation with an AI interface like ChatGPT or a computer-generated video telling us the news, recent leaps in artificial intelligence have given humans new powers of creativity. But with it comes new risks and also responsibilities. For an example, just take a look at these fake images. Now, clearly the Pope hasn't been out and about wearing a puffer jacket. And take a look at this one. As for former President Donald Trump, yes, he was arrested, but it didn't look like this. But the point is, they actually look real. Now, our next guest argues we're about to see a lot more of these kind of deep fakes created without special skills or big budgets. And the more we see, the more hesitant we're likely to be to be able to trust anything. It's just part of a warning from someone well qualified to raise concerns. I'm talking about Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO and chairman. Now he's co-authored an op-ed in The Atlantic, which I recommend you read, where he argues that artificial intelligence has the potential to amplify all of the worst aspects of social media. And he's also calling for five reforms to help protect 
our societies. And Eric Schmidt joins me now. Eric, great to have you with us. Um, I'm really excited to speak to you about this. Um, the starting point, I think, for the conversation is that social media has already been pretty toxic to our society. If you overlay that with the power of artificial intelligence, you amplify everything, the addictive nature of it, the toxicity of the misinformation, and it's bad. You're exactly right. The mistake we made 15 years ago is we didn't understand human behavior. We thought that everybody in tech, everybody in the world was sort of like tech people, sort of reasonably well-behaved in the rules of our society as tech people. It's not how the world works. People use a lot of these tools to misinform, to manipulate, to do even worse things. And it's going to get a lot worse because of AI. AI will allow you to individually target people and make them believe things which are completely and utterly false. It's going to make it more addictive in your mind. It's going to make it more manipulative. And actually, one of the examples that you use is TikTok and the relative popularity of TikTok, because actually this is a platform that in your mind is, is doing this best today. Well, TikTok is, TikTok is particularly good at targeting uh, based on people's interests, and they do, a, they do a very, very good job of it. The question is, what is it doing to young people's minds? In our article, we point out that uh, young people below the age of 16 are not allowed to do many, many things in societies because their brains are not as well developed. And yet they have full uh, access to every both good and evil thing that every adult does in the world, including things like pornography and videos of horrific crimes and things like this that you would never want your teenage child. And the data indicates that it's particularly bad for preteens and in particular for preteen girls. Lots and lots of evidence that there needs to be regulation around the age of access to this, as well as some other things as well. We'll come back to that because um, I know one of the um, ways that you want to address this is talking about raising the age of Internet adulthood to 16 and, and actually enforcing it, which I think is perhaps the stronger point here. But there's one other angle, too, in, in your warnings, which is um, the influence of autocratic leadership around the world, the TikTok equivalent uh, in China, for example, and how they flood the system with uh, pro-government information. Similar story with, with Russia around the Ukraine war too. Um, the power to influence politics around the world, also an important factor. So, so what I learned in running YouTube was that things that are seen cannot be unseen. And that's especially true of video. So when you produce a fake video, which is going to happen a lot in this next cycle of elections, even if you tell people that it's fake, even if they know before they watch it, it changes their behavior for reasons we don't fully understand. So I will tell you that everyone, all the players, whether it's governments and our opponents or corporations or special interests, are going to be producing things which are intended to either manipulate or misinform us using technology that is spread very, very broadly. It's extremely easy to use this technology. It's extremely easy to find it. The fact of the matter is the diffusion of this technology is accomplished and it's available globally. You have no idea today who made the video and the image that you're viewing on a social media platform today. You honestly just don't know. How can that be okay? I mean, what happens in a society where you literally trust nothing, where your children can trust nothing? We, we don't know what happens when society's beacons, that is the governance and the culture and so forth, are so easily manipulated. In uh, our, our article, what we suggest is that there are some relatively simple modifications that can be done. And 
before we talk about the specifics, I should say that AI itself is an extraordinary achievement that the development of an AI doctor and an AI tutor and so forth will raise intelligence capabilities all around the world. So please don't hear that this is a reason to stop or whatever. We just have to manage it. When electricity showed up, people understood it was dangerous. Thank God they didn't stop electricity. They just figured out a way to live with it. We're going to have to live with this invention of this incredibly powerful technology with what I believe are some reasonably sensible changes in how the social media works. When I talk to political leaders about AI, which is what I do seems, seems like every day, all, what they really want to talk about is social media. Okay, so you actually are hitting on the point that, that at least policymakers and lawmakers realize is the most immediate threat, I think. And thank you for the qualification because it's uh, not about it. the technology, it's the application of the technology that, that matters. Okay, I want to talk about your fixes. I'm going to list them. Because then I think my big question looking at these, and they all make perfect sense, is how likely we are to see policymakers actually act. I, I can't oh. Hear. oh, no. That was a long question. Can we try and get Eric back? I think we now have reestablished the connection. I blame perhaps hacking from one of the social media giants that may have been listening in. I'm joking. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did save you from a really long question, though. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the solutions that you're talking about, and I'll quickly mm -hmm. whip through some of them. Um, every user on social media must be authenticated. AI-generated material must be marked. Greater data transparency, we know the EU's done it, so the US could do too. And my personal favorite, social media companies should sometimes be held liable for the content on their platform. Eric, it makes perfect sense to me. What are lawmakers saying to you about the prospects of achieving any of this when they haven't tackled the social media giants really up to now? We've just started talking to the lawmakers. I think our recommendations are so sensible and they're consistent with American principles of free speech. Remember that the platforms have an exemption because of Section 230, which was in 1994, but now the platforms are recommending information. They have a role in spreading good and bad information, and if they do really bad information, they should have some level of liability for it. That just seems obvious. You need to know who is on your platform. You don't necessarily have to tell everyone, but how do you know it's not a bot or an evil Russian person or something like that? And you need to know where it came from. I want to know if this is an authentic picture in the sense of it was taken at the right time or was it modified. Um, with the puffer jacket and the pope, the pope, the actual pope is bent over from illness and age. Um, you'd know that if you'd met the pope. Most people say, oh, it looks like a great pope. How do you discover these things? There are technologies that, are, that people are trying to do to detect whether these things are fake. But the truth is that when the picture is written, we need to note that it was written by a computer. It needs to be generated and marked in a watermark of some kind to do that. We know how to do all of this. We've just chosen not to do it. Part of the reason we've chosen that is because the social media companies are um, essentially trying to maximize revenue. And the way they maximize revenue is by maximizing engagement. And the way they maximize engagement is by maximizing outrage. Part of the reason that everyone seems so upset is because the systems are designed to make us push us to the sides, left or right, right? They're not pushing us to the middle. They're pushing us away. That sells more. Yeah, it pushes us to the extremes of um, views and society follows it. 
Um, what I actually really love about this is it's proactive rather than suggesting, look, a six-month pause and we'll, we'll try and talk about this. Um, I think we also have to be honest with ourselves that this technology is here. It's improving all the time. We've talked about ChatGPT 3.5 and, and then ChatGPT 4. And the difference between these two things in such a short space of time is enormous. We're not stopping this, Eric. We just have to shape it better. That's the message. You know, GPT-4 did a pretty good job of what they call the AI safety card, and they tested for all the sort of worst things. How do I kill myself? How do I hurt other people? That, And they did the best that they could. But it's a good warning that when these systems come up, they have to actually be checked. They have to have what is called AI alignment. They have to have what are called guardrails built into them. But many of the open source pieces of software that have been distributed already have no such guardrails. They don't prevent you from making evil images and bad outcomes and spreading them. So the whole system has to get ready for an onslaught of immoral, illegal, or manipulative images that we should not be presenting to every person. This is not because it's not free speech. It's just because they're false. They're actually manipulating. They're trying to hurt people. The social media companies need to police this. And if not, the government will have to regulate this. Probability that the social media companies do this on their own, Eric? Um, it, to the degree that there are worse and worse outcomes, they will be forced by regulation, by shame, by advertisers to do this. One of the things that's missed is that advertisers don't want to be adjacent misinformation. Advertisers don't want to be in a bad situation where people are being harmed. And so the, advertise, the, the social media companies should understand that it is in their interest to clean up their act with respect to misinformation. And we have the technology to do it. But you know better than me that it's not the big advertisers that drive this. It's the small and medium-sized enterprises that form the bulk of the, the advertising. And they need these platforms to exist. I'm not sure that's a valid threat. I think to your point, it has to be Congress that, that recognizes the dangers to society and, and acts. Um, I want to just point out one of the other things, because what grabbed me about your op-ed first and foremost was it began with a discussion and uh, a journalist goading um, a chatbot, Sydney, on how to throw off the yoke of um, human control. And I'll put my hand up and say I've tried this with ChatGPT too. Um, one of the things that they were talking about was stealing nuclear launch codes, creating novel viruses. We've been through that. The third one was making people argue until they kill one another. And I think the first two have got limits that exist already in society. And to emphasize the point, I think that we're making social media doesn't. And, and now's the time to act. That's extremely well put. The reason we're alive today is because we couldn't get nuclear fissile materials. Right. So evil people couldn't build the bombs. But an evil person, a new Osama bin Laden, can flood the zone right, with misinformation up to as long as he wants to. So we need to address this now. I am optimistic that we can address this. And the reason I'm optimistic is that we should recognize that when this stuff, when the really bad things happen, which I believe will happen in the next few years, people will really be harmed. And nobody wants that. So this is a case where the industry needs to do a little self-reflection and the government needs to be a bit more aggressive. There's every reason to think if you look at the European, um, the European regulations, which are coming in place, Europeans are trying to get ahead of it. The U.S. should do this in such a way that's consistent with free speech. We are in no way proposing limitations on free speech. What we're saying is that it, it needs to be human speech. I'm in favor of free speech of humans and not of robots. Yeah. 
I couldn't agree more on that. I have one more question, and you're going to hate me for this. Um, one of the quotes in the article was, but whatever actions AIs may one day take if they develop their own desires. I know the point that you're making in the article and the discussion that we're having is that actually that doesn't matter because we're doing enough damage incorrectly, perhaps, using AI, overlaying what we have already in society that's doing damage. But do you imagine one day that the AI will have those capabilities, particularly if we don't create the guardrails today to utilize it properly? The guardrails are really important. In the case of the Sydney example that you, you spoke of earlier, um, what really happened was Sydney had been trained on romance novels and it included all of these narratives of falling in love with the journalist's wife and so forth. It just got confused and it frightened the journalist and produced a, a profound article. But the fact of the matter is that it, no one was harmed by that misbehavior. In the future, it is likely that these systems will be able to have memory, they'll be current, that is that they'll be trained, and they will be capable of recursive self-improvement. Mm -hmm. When that happens, that is they can actually begin to get smarter and smarter, we're gonna have a different regulatory set of problems, but we need to fix the ones we highlight now first before we attack that one. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And final point, there are huge upsides, Eric, that you wrote about in your book. Can you just give us the bright side of how this is gonna be changing the world for the good, be it science, be it education, if we get all this right? This wave is the biggest wave I've ever seen in my career, and I've seen five or six of them. Uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, got 100 million users in basically two months. It took Gmail roughly five years to get to the same point. The rate of adoption is phenomenal. In science, and in particular in biology and drug discovery, people are using these technologies to advance solutions to problems that have bedeviled humanity for decades and years and centuries. This is all good. Can you imagine having a universal AI tutor that speaks to each and every child and each and every adult in their own language and figures out how to make them better educated, smarter, better citizens in their countries and that sort of thing? Can you imagine lifting up the standard of medical care globally so that everyone has the access to a pretty good doctor? Uh, it, there's evidence now that these systems can pass medical exams and legal exams. These are going to be incredible amplifiers for the people who are trying to help people, educate people globally. And I defy you to complain about that. It's just obvious that this technology will make us smarter, we just have to police the downsides. It's like every other fundamental technology, and it's profound. Yeah. Eric, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you Eric very Schmidt much. There. Thank you, former CEO and chairman of Google. We'll speak soon, please. Okay, welcome back to First Move. And I do believe we've managed to reestablish connection with Nick Robertson. Nick, can you hear me? I can indeed. Fantastic. Just testing. Just bring us up to speed with what's been happening. <laughs> a, a profound, if you will, attack on Kyiv by the Russians. Complex and profound because they appear to be trying to sort of again penetrate the air defenses in Kyiv and the air defenses standing up to that test by the Russians. Six of their high-speed hypersonic Kinsale air-launched missiles fired uh, at Kyiv from the north of the city, according to officials there. And, and this is a, a missile that goes 10 times the speed of sound. All of those were told intercepted. Then there were the
the nine cruise missiles, more of a standard speed cruise missile fired from the south, coming uh, off ships uh, in the Black Sea. Those were intercepted. And then there was three of the land-based S-400 uh, missiles, which are a big land-based missile fired from the east, Russian territory. So clearly the picture emerges here of Russia trying to target and get missiles through to Kiev, the capital, from multiple different directions at the same time in the night, uh, apparently defeated. Uh, the Russians claiming to have hit a U.S. Patriot battery, defensive battery system in Kyiv. No evidence to support that at the moment. It's areas like this in the east of Ukraine, however, where those air defenses that have been supplied by uh, Ukraine's allies are not so dense on the ground, are not able to protect the front line and the troops. And here in this area, still very intense fighting around Bakhmut. The push and pull for territory in the center of that city is intense. We know that Russia has been forced to pull troops out of the line in other areas to put them into Bakhmut. Uh, and the Ukrainians' offensive in the areas around Bakhmut, um, ongoing, uh, but not apparently at the moment, taking a lot of territory. Fascinating, Nick. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that update. Nick Robertson there. Okay, to Turkey now. And campaigning has restarted ahead of runoff presidential elections set for May 28th. While the outcome may be uncertain, investors, it seems, are predicting a win for incumbent President Erdogan. The Turkish lira hit a fresh record low Monday. The stock market fell 6% and the bank's sub-index, the financials, fell by more than 9%. The high-stakes election brings with it potentially profound implications for security across Europe, the entry of Sweden into NATO, and the role of Turkey as a a regional power broker amid Russia's war in Ukraine. And joining us now is Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media. He's also the author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, welcome as always. Turkish society claiming, seemingly split down the middle and we can't blame low turnout because it was incredibly high. Is it advantage Erdogan at this moment in the runoff? It is. Uh, the economy has been doing badly. And of course, Erdogan responded poorly to that horrific earthquake that was such a national tragedy uh, over the past months. And yet he was still able to pull out almost a majority. It was almost a first round win. He will almost certainly win this election in the second round. I mean, it's a slam dunk. It's, it's not really open to much question. Um, and a big part of that is his charisma, his appeal to nationalism, to populist forces, uh, to Islamic conservatism, um, as well as uh, the lower classes and uh, providing a lot of payouts to them in the last couple of months before the election. Can we also describe this as a free and fair election? I mean, you have described, and I'm going to use the phrase, structural advantages uh, to the incumbent. I guess you don't have to degrade the integrity of election institutions if you're willing to suppress media exposure for the opposition as a, a classic example. That's right. Uh, it's a free election. Uh, it's not a fair election. It's an unfair election. Free in the sense that uh, both parties generally agree on the outcomes. There was no stuffing of ballot boxes illicitly. And indeed, Erdogan said before the election that he would accept any outcome. That's rather different than what we saw former President Trump say on CNN just a week ago. But in part, that's because Erdogan feels comfortable that he has so much more control, vastly more media attention given to Erdogan than his opposition. That is structural and by design. 
the state either owns the media or overwhelmingly influences the media. And that's even true with social media. We saw that with Twitter. They were going to be shut down if they weren't prepared to shut down a number of targeted opposition supporting accounts literally in the days before the first round election. Yeah, you said it. Free but not fair. What about the geopolitics? Does, does the broader architect now of this mean status quo is maintained if he does win in the, in the runoff as you're predicting? I mean, we, we can argue what it means now for Sweden's entry to NATO. Does it clear the way for that? And I guess what's the quid pro quo? Uh, it does clear the way for that. I'd be very surprised if uh, they don't approve uh, Sweden within a couple of months uh, of Erdogan's uh, second round win. Um, some of that will be uh, Sweden's willingness uh, to behave differently going forward uh, with uh, Kurdish opposition members that are living within Sweden. That's been a, a, a sore point for the Turks. Some of it will be from the United States and a willingness to sell advanced military equipment, including uh, aircraft, jet fighters, to the Turks, which had been held up. Um, in the United States politically. Um, I, I think that that's going to go forward as well. So Erdogan wants to always squeeze as much leverage as he possibly can from his geopolitical position. He is you know, a, one of the only leader in the world uh, that's in NATO that can talk to both Putin and Zelensky, for example. He was critically involved um, in the negotiations of the, uh, the food and grain deal uh, that we saw in the Black Sea between both sides. Um, that's been useful, but in every step of the way, Erdogan wants something for his involvement. And given how badly his economy is performing, it's not so surprising he does. Yeah, a necessity to extract. Um, I want to move on and talk about Ukraine, Russia. There's clearly a physical war that's ongoing. There's an informational war, a morale war that's taking place. Um, if part of the plan of the counteroffensive, I think, for the Ukrainians was in some way to build anticipation and perhaps use Russian troops' imagination against them, can we argue that what we're seeing perhaps in Bakhmut suggests it's working? Yeah, it's funny that NATO leaders even two months ago were telling the Ukrainians, you should just give up on Bakhmut. It's too much of a bloodbath. You're going to lose it. You need those troops in other places. And actually, it turned out that the Russians were even more incompetent and degraded in the morale than NATO leaders had anticipated. And the Ukrainians have held on. And over the last four or five days, they've even taken back several hundred meters very, very tough slog of land. But this is not where the counteroffensive is going to be fought. What the Ukrainians intend to do is they want to break the land bridge that the Russians have between Russia and Crimea. Over the next few weeks, you're going to see them with probing attacks, try to understand with artillery and with small advances where the Russian forces might be weakest at the front lines and in depth. And then at some point, relatively soon, Zelensky will give the order, um, and that order is going to be a counteroffensive, a land war that the world has not seen since World War II. It will be tens of thousands of troops on both sides fighting in the trenches. It's going to be incredibly bloody. Thousands are likely to die, and we're going to watch this play out. I, I'm not sure that the international community is prepared um, for what we're going to see, just the level of human suffering uh, that really we haven't seen in, in military sense um, in our lifetimes. It's, it's going to be a very, very tragic and painful 
um, uh, months, uh, but, but hopefully one that the Ukrainians will be able to succeed in getting some of their land back. Yeah, more suffering after a year of it. How's that going to pay back in Russia, the images that you're creating? I mean, uh, Putin gave that speech on, on Victory Day in Russia and he compared the invasion in Ukraine to um, the defeat of Nazi Germany. Uh, at the point where you're making those kind of comparisons, um, you're sending really stringent messages to, to your audience at home. What's going on? Julia, no opposition will be tolerated, and, and you and I have not seen any demonstrations in Russia of any scale uh, since uh, that mobilization uh, that took place months and months ago. Uh, Putin's level of control in the country it remains near absolute, uh, so it's not as if you're going to break his regime. His economy has managed to be more resilient over the last year, despite all of the sanctions despite the freezing of their assets than most in the West had anticipated. But the performance of his military has been disastrous, and they have lost, uh, either through deaths uh, or injury, um, almost all of the troops that were originally fighting on the ground in that initial invasion. It's staggering to think about the Russian losses. 50% of their tanks, 40% of their total armed infantry uh, vehicles, all gone. And they're not going to be able to rebuild them anytime soon, while the Ukrainians are getting billions and billions of dollars of the most advanced Western weaponry and training and intelligence. So, I mean, hopefully what this means is that the Russians don't get another bite at this apple, that if the Ukrainians take significant land back and you have negotiations, uh, that the, the Russians don't come back and threaten Ukrainian sovereignty in three or five or 10 years. And Ukraine gets to have security guarantees from the West, gets to join the European Union, and gets to rebuild their country. Because let's face it, Ukraine's been fighting in a war for almost a decade now, since 2014. Mm. And for most of that decade, the West largely did not care. There is a level of necessity, of responsibility uh, of the West to the Ukrainian people. That, and I think an obligation that now is, is starting to be fulfilled. Yeah, this needs to end. Um, I do love reading your notes because they generally amuse me whenever they come. And, and one of the lines, and I want to um, just quote it, um, the dumbest okay. recurring character in U.S. politics, brackets, no, not the one you're thinking. Not that one. Close back, no. <laughs> We're not going to have this conversation again. You're talking about the debt ceiling. I am. Mm -hmm. It is the dumbest. It is the dumbest it recurring the dumbest. character. Yeah. The idea that the United States has a big credit card that we've taken out all of these bills. And now we're like, nah, we're, we're going to threaten not to pay those bills is, is one of the most preternaturally stupid things that the West might threaten to do. It's, it truly is threatening to punch yourself in the face repeatedly. And the fact that the Republicans um, and the Democrats uh, seem to show such joy for it um, is, is kind of painful. Uh, but, but the thing is, it's so stupid that no one's taking it seriously. That's why the markets aren't going down. Mm. That's why the allies, I mean, the G7, you're going to see in Hiroshima, and Biden's going out there this Friday, the debt limit is not going to be a significant issue, and that's because none of the American allies actually believe the Americans will ultimately be that stupid. And, and I know we're talking about Congress, Julia, and so I, it shouldn't be a high bar, but I, I actually think that the, the world is right on this one. I, I think we'll get through it. Yeah. Forgive me for just face planting as we discuss it. Self-inflicted problem. Cuckoo. Yeah.
among yeah, many. Yeah, it'll come back. We'll do it again. <laughs> I, know, I know, exactly. And we'll be here again. Yeah. Yep. Ian, great to chat to you. Thank you. Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and Zero Media. Thank you so much for that. And that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Thank you for watching. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.